The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for Wednesday, January 19th. 2022. As we speak in Washington, D.C., the Democratic Party is intent on ramming their head against a wall to demonstrate exactly how fast and how violent they can do it. I I don't exactly see what their strategy is. And to be totally honest, if we're going to make a meta decision on coverage on this podcast, I'm getting to the end of trying to make sense of it. So we're not going to talk a lot about the the, the push to force Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to vote against the filibuster. Look, wake me up when they start talking about the Electoral Count Act. Wake me up when they start breaking up Build Back Better into smaller bills, which is probably what they should have done when the administration began. But there we go. So we're not going to talk a lot about that. Instead, we're going to talk about primaries, real and imagined. We begin in the world of fantasy. But how long until it becomes... Real. The 2024 Republican presidential primary may have already begun with the only two candidates that would seem to matter. The former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, in a bit of a shadow tit for tat with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Based on the way that I'm surveying the field right now, DeSantis is pretty much the only dude that I think could give Trump a heads up run for his money. And if you read between the lines, they've been trading paint for the last few weeks. We will go through all that, including the sound of them sniping at each other without saying each other's names. But also, there's an actual primary happening, (laughs) one that actually has candidates that actually will wrap up sometime in the next few months, and that is in Pennsylvania. Dr. Mehmet Oz and David McCormick are two of the Republican candidates. Either of them have lived in Pennsylvania in decades. Both of them have put a lot of time and a lot of money into trying to secure that nom. They also have groups that are attacking each other. We will break down not one, not two, not three, but four ads in that race. And guys, I I know that sometimes you guys are, uh, at least in in our surveys, some of you guys are really just here for me to break stuff down. And I appreciate that. And and I, I I I will always continue to do that. Some of you guys love both my breakdowns and the interviews. 
So for those of you who skip interviews, let me just tell you, this is not one to skip. This is a very, very good one. I found myself to be dumb on one central idea. When unemployment's low, normally the president gets credit for a good economy. Double that up when the stock market's doing well, which it is. So why isn't Joe Biden? Yes, we know inflation, right? So so that is part of it. But also, whenever these jobs reports come uh, come out, we have disappointing hiring stats along with a plummeting unemployment rate. How, Sway? I don't know. So I brought on uh, uh, a senior economist from the Economic Policy Institute, and, and she was amazing in terms of breaking down a lot of this stuff. Guys, this is very nutritional. I, I don't think that anybody's going to be able to listen to this and believe that there is a kind of partisan tilt here. This is for all stripes. Let's just understand how we calculate the numbers that we look at. And then stay to the very end because there was a stat that really had my jaw on the floor about how limited, in reality, the world of work from home is, which as somebody who has worked from home pre-pandemic was a surprising number to be. Lock in in your head how many people you believe are working from home because of the pandemic, because I believe that, that the answer might surprise you. Bird first. Donald Trump wants a clear field in 2024. He does not want to run against anybody in 2024. He wants everybody who is his ally to say as clear as possible that they are not running in 2024. Separate from that, there is only in my mind one person that could, in a straight-up head-to-head primary, beat the former president. That man has not said that he will not run in 2024. His name is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, before we go any further, let's understand some of the past of Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis was not the favorite to win the Republican nomination for governor when he ran in 2018. He was somebody that was very loyal to Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, uh, picked him, endorsed him, and DeSantis went on. Unleashing one of the most sycophantic ads (laughs) that I have ever seen of one politician fawning over another one in which Ron DeSantis was reading Donald Trump bedtime stories to his child. But still, backed by Trump in an election year 2018 that was not favorable to Republicans, DeSantis beats his challenger, Andrew Gillum. Since that point, DeSantis has become the focal point for not only general Florida animus, and let's be real, people just hate Florida. 
I don't know why they hate Florida. I find it to be a very charming place. It was a pleasure to live there. I will always rep that state until the day that I die. But people hate Florida. They make fun of it a lot. Uh, you know, Florida man, gators, meth, blah, 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 blah. Now, it doesn't stop people from vacationing there. But still, there's like this weird Madonna whore complex that the nation has with the Sunshine State. And Ron DeSantis has certainly been the mascot for that. But things have gone beyond the pale into overdrive since COVID. But let's go back to this prospective 2024 Republican primary. Again, Ron DeSantis has not said that he's not going to run. And the reason why is because he has hidden behind the fact that he's got an election this year. He is looking to secure his second and final, if he wins, term as Florida governor. But he's effectively a national figure considering the amount of press that he's got. So let's get into this shadow war, shall we? Donald Trump is reportedly, and again, the Trump world is a notoriously leaky place. Donald Trump is not pleased with Ron DeSantis. And during this interview with One America News Network, apparently took a shot at him. I've taken it. I've had the booster. Many politicians, I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed, and one of the questions was, did you get the booster? Because they had the vaccine. And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it. Because they're gutless. you got to say it. Whether you had it or not, say it. Many assume that the gutless politician Donald Trump is talking about was... DeSantis. And the reason why is because DeSantis was on a Fox business interview wherein he refused to say whether or not he has been boosted. Enter the Ruthless podcast, an aggressive GOP program hosted by Republican advisor Josh Holmes and conservative Twitter polemicist Comfortably Smug. During a live show in St. Petersburg, Florida, they brought on Ron DeSantis. And I got to say, the interview, to my ears, sounded like the launch of a presidential campaign. At least I would say that I don't know how that would be different, how the interview would be different if... Ron DeSantis had just announced that he was running for president. Aside from DeSantis's record on COVID, almost entirely the questions were comprised of national issues, including inflation and Afghanistan. But despite the fact that Ron DeSantis is running for governor, that's why he can't say anything about 2024, and he doesn't mention a single Florida Democrat by name the entire interview, something that you'd usually do if you were focused on a race in which they're your opponent. There was a question about what DeSantis would do differently if he could go back to 2020. 
Here was his answer. February, early March, that it would lead to locking down the country. I just didn't. I didn't think that was on the radar. Uh, I was dealing with, I mean, I had Pence and uh, the CDC director down at Port Everglades talking about cruise ships the second week of March, and no one was talking about shutting down the country. And I think if knowing now what I know then, if, I, if that was a threat earlier, I would have been much louder about you know, trying to say this is not. But what happened was people like Fauci panicked. So nothing on the Florida state side, nothing that happened within his own state's borders. No, the thing he would go and do differently, the thing he would go and do differently is push harder on the Trump administration to not lock down the country, quote, I would have spoken up more to Trump, who, by the way, ordered the lockdowns. That's not a quote. That's just me paraphrasing. But that's essentially what he is doing. What's more, NBC News, uh, and this is uh, actually frequent PX3 guest Mark Caputo, who recently went from Politico to NBC. He reported that some in Trump's orbit smelled something fishy. When it came to that interview, indeed, a hidden hand. Josh Holmes, the host of the Ruthless podcast, is a longtime advisor to Mitch McConnell, or as Trump likes to call him, the old crow. The same Mitch who is a stated enemy to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is endorsing Senate candidates under the idea that they will not support Mitch McConnell for leadership. So the Trump sources are saying, oh, well, of course he goes on a McConnell podcast and blah, blah, blah. I don't see it. Personally, I, I don't buy the McConnell thing. I think that there is a brewing issue between DeSantis and Trump. Either of them admit it. In fact, DeSantis says on that very same podcast that nobody should take the bait. And this is all a media creation that DeSantis and Trump have a growing rivalry between each other, which I don't buy for a second. This is master. Versus Apprentice. This is Trump, a man who came to political prominence by decapitating establishment Republicans, now being challenged by somebody that can look him in the eye and say, I learned it from watching you, Dad. This is the Sith rule of two, one with power, the other that craves it. But more than that, DeSantis knows Trump. He knows that if Trump takes a shot at him and DeSantis knows that Trump took a shot at him, that if he doesn't hit back, not anything big, just a little, you know, if it's a warning shot on one side, it's a warning shot on the other side. If he doesn't do that, Trump will lose respect for him. Again, everything that you want to know about Donald Trump's instincts, just think of like some very aggressive business book that you would read in the 80s. Like 
this, this is this is very, very, very alpha dominant kind of behavior that that Trump is 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 exerting. And I think my read on this is that this is DeSantis saying, hey, look, you know, if you want to talk about gutless politicians, then I'll talk about the politicians that ordered the lockdowns that I've been fighting against. Because, by the way, and there's another moment in this podcast where DeSantis says, you know, some politicians want to play nice with the media. I think that might be that, that this hasn't been reported at all. But I don't think it's crazy to think that that might also be a, a, a subliminal diss to Trump, who, by the way, has always been very, very, very friendly with the media. Still, 2024, finally, it's here. We have a face-off in the Pennsylvania Senate. The Republican nomination for PA Senate. Uh, this is the vacated spot of Pat Toomey. Is going to have a lot of money and star power poured into it. And by the way, I mean into it, literally, assuming that both ingredients are starting outside of Pennsylvania because two of the leading candidates have not lived in that state for the past few decades. It's David McCormick versus Dr. Oz. One is rich, one is famous. Who will win? We don't know. I got four ads for you. Uh, uh, an ad for and against McCormick and uh, another two with the same pattern for Dr. Oz. Let's start with McCormick. All right, let's play a little game of upside, downside. Upside, he was actually raised in Pittsburgh. So he, he has roots in Pennsylvania. Downside. He's mostly lived in Washington, D.C. and Connecticut since. Upside. This isn't McCormick's first brush with the Republican politics. He was an undersecretary of the Treasury for W. Bush. Downside. Since then, he's pretty much spent all of his time at a hedge fund with ties to China. So, we're going to start with McCormick in his own words, trying to introduce himself to Pennsylvania Republicans. This is old David trying to make up for all that Wall Street money, proving that he's just one of the yinzers down by the crick. I shot my first buck right over that hill. It was huge. It was a four-point buck. I thought it was a doe. Growing up, I bailed hay, trimmed trees, worked hard. He means he chased girls. I played football here, running back. Lots of touchdowns. Yeah, guess who did pretty boys blocking? And the tackling. Dave McCormick's Pennsylvania roots will keep him grounded. I'm Dave McCormick, and I approve this message, because with these guys, I'll always remember where I came from. But not so fast. Here is an attack ad against McCormick. Not only is he hit for being a hedge fund fancy pants, but also what he did there. The fact that he outsourced jobs, a big no-no on the populist right that's going to be an outsized force in this GOP primary, and heresy, criticisms against Donald Trump. 
McCormick got rich off us. McCormick led a hedge fund with a billion-dollar Chinese investment program. He called China our ally, and he cut Pittsburgh jobs only to create new jobs overseas, all to make a buck. McCormick even criticized President Trump's China policy. No wonder Trump fired him. David McCormick, Wall Street and China win. Pennsylvania loses. American Leadership Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. By the way, Trump to this point has not endorsed anybody currently running in Pennsylvania. He had endorsed somebody, but that dude dropped out of the race because of a very ugly domestic situation. And that's actually led to candidates like Oz and McCormick jumping in. So let's hear from Dr. Oz. Obviously, few politicians are going to be able to look through a camera lens and connect to a home audience like a guy who's done it professionally for many, many, many years. This is where he needs to shine. He's got to be a better retail communicator than his opponents because of his natural skill set. This is his second ad. Washington got COVID wrong. They got the economy wrong, too. Biden's reckless spending caused inflation. Bad trade deals shuttered Pennsylvania factories. Wall Street outsourced your jobs to China. Now, you and I know that America has the best workers, technology, and values. What's missing are leaders with the courage to fight. I'm a conservative outsider. I can't be bought. Together, we'll take back our country, reignite the economy, and get America working again. I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message. All right, a few things to point out here. Aside from the national talking points, he attacks Wall Street, a.k.a. hedge funds like McCormick's, and the fact that they have outsourced jobs. The ad also takes place at a factory where, to my eyes, Dr. Oz looks about as home as Derek Zoolander in a coal mine. But wait, how does the anti-Oz crowd look to take down the good doctor? Seen this? I've always believed healthcare choices should be made by you. That's new. For years, Mehmet Oz advocated for European-style government healthcare mandates, called Obamacare a brave effort and a big real-life bonus, made ads promoting it. But the new healthcare law has so much in it that could help Californians... So when it comes to Mehmet Oz, you can't trust everything he says on TV. Pennsylvania Patriots is responsible for the content of this advertising. Well, you hit him right where his strength is. Name recognition. Sure. You've seen Dr. Oz. You've watched his show. You might even like him. But can you... Believe him? Because he definitely was out there talking about uh, uh, Obamacare. He was out there with Michelle Obama talking about her school lunch program, about her get fit program. So if he starts tilting full MAGA, if he starts going super red blooded, is he going to be a total phony? Now, the Trump playbook on this is is to just say whatever the people want to hear, like be out front on it. If you said something different in the past and now you say something that people like more then just say, yeah, that's where I'm at now. I believe in this now. This is where I'm at. And if you've got the goods, then it will carry you forward. 
I would say the Trump might look at that, in my opinion, and say, sure, yeah, let him let him remind everybody that you're famous. That's a strength. The more everybody knows that you're famous, the better they're going to remember your name. And that's really all that matters. I got to get out to Pennsylvania for this one. Uh, I had I had a, a, a listener email me over the weekend or, or put it in the Discord. I forget which. Said they ran into Dr. Oz at a big agriculture show that was happening in central Pennsylvania. He was out there pressing the flesh. God, do I need to be there. I want to see, man, the, the Oz vibe. I'm very, very curious to, to, to see the Oz vibe. I feel like I might have a beat just even watching the ads and, and, and reading about David McCormick. I kind of feel like I know how he would react out amongst people. Like he even, he seems a little affable, but the Oz thing, man, either it's going to be really awkward or he's really going to have a connection. He's going to have that like Clintonian look into your eyes sort of connection. I don't know. I don't know which. I got to get out there. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for supporting this show by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Two bonus podcasts each and every week on this show. Each and every week. This Sunday, uh, uh, boy, man, if you don't like Joe Biden or if you are perpetually confused by what the hell is happening with Joe Biden, this Monday's episode was was the one to listen to, man. Uh, it was all the Sunday shows, which I think are are starting to give that man a little bit less the benefit of the doubt. Of course, we also have our Thursday program, which is our late edition. That is actually the latest news that we cover in the week is on that Patreon episode. So... Uh, we're getting into midterms now. Things are actually happening. Now is the time where you want to load up. If you don't want to be surprised, if you want to know what's going on as all these races, and this is one of those where I got to keep a lot of plates spinning. So I, I got my eyes all over this country. If you want to know what is coming down the pike before anybody else, the only thing you should do is head on over to take politics seriously. Com. Sign up at the $3 level. That gets you the two bonus podcasts. Anything above that, you still get the podcast and you get other stuff. One last thing to note, not a plug for our Patreon, but rather for our friend of the show, Andrew Heaton. He's got a new book out, Appropriately Human. It is not a political book, but it does involve politicians. It is a humorous science fiction infused uh book of short stories a collection of short stories uh and it's it's really funny i mean heaton's really funny just go get it mightyheaton.com slash books appropriately human you can also find it on amazon but uh support our old boy he had a reading over the weekend it was very very funny the stuff I've read so far is 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 amazing. There we go. 
MightyEaton.com slash books. Appropriately Human is the new short story collection from Andrew Heaton. Guys, I'm confused. When unemployment is low, people, including blood-sucking pundits like me, normally say the economy is doing well. You can double that when the stock market's good, which it is. But then again, we also have seen these jobs reports with weak hiring stats alongside a plummeting unemployment rate. And nobody seems particularly pleased about the economy because of inflation. I don't know what's happening. So when I feel dumb, I need to talk to somebody smart, which is why our guest today is Elise Gould. She's a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Welcome to the show, Elise. Thank you so much for inviting me. So every once in a while, I, I realize that I'm I'm kind of dumb on something. And and when I feel dumb, I try to get smarter. And so I went on the internet and I looked for an expert on the unemployment rate because I felt very, very befuddled by it, largely because as a pundit, there tend to be some hard and fast rules. When people talk about the economy, specifically how an administration or a legislative branch is handling it and whether or not they get credit for it, in my mind, there's usually two vectors that I've looked at. What is the unemployment rate and how well is the stock market doing? Because that ties into mutual funds and retirement and stuff like that. If you just look at those two metrics right now, the unemployment rate is at 3.9, something that is staggering. Any other time in my lifetime, if you have a 3.9% unemployment rate, it is amazing. You should be doing backflips. And the stock market is doing very well. And yet, public polling has Biden totally underwater when it comes to uh, uh, how he's handling the economy. We are consistently seeing these same unemployment reports with very disappointing employment numbers. So not as many people are getting hired into the workforce that you might uh, expect, or at least that the, that the experts is, uh, expect. And of course there is this looming threat of inflation. So I, I got a, I throw a lot out there and, and we're going to chip away at it uh, throughout this interview. Uh, at least let, let's start here. How is the unemployment rate tabulated? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I even want to back up one Go, step. please. Go ahead. People talk about um, this, these jobs data that come out every month. Yes. And there's this thing from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that's called the Employment Situation Report. So that comes out every month. That's the first Friday of the month. And you have information about the last month. So the latest report we have is from December 2021. And we have full year then data for 2021 to be able to look at to talk about today. And um, there are two surveys that are reported on by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that measure what is happening in the labor market. The first one is known as the establishment survey. It's a survey of businesses and they're counting how many people are on payrolls. So you know um, when they report the top line number of how many jobs were added, that's what they're looking at. Okay. 
So they're looking at establishments, answer questions about how many people they have on payrolls. The other survey is also is called the household survey. It's also called the current population survey. And that is a survey of households. And in that survey, that's where you get measures like the unemployment rate, because you're asking people, are they working? Are they actively looking for a job? And so those two surveys sometimes say very different things because they are actually measuring slightly different things. Gotcha. Okay. So that's why there is a, a gap between the two. Drilling down to the unemployment rate. So that's you're asking you're asking people whether or not they are at work or looking for work, which brings up another thing that happens politically. And I've tended to view this as mostly sour grapes, whatever one administration has a good economy that is usually defined by a low unemployment rate. Almost on cue, the opposition party will yell, but look at the real unemployment rate that that there is a a number but it excludes something that you mentioned, people actively looking for work. If you are falling out of the job market and you are therefore no longer looking for uh, employment, that you are now not even counted in, in that number. And sometimes that percentage relative to the population is higher. Are we seeing more of, of that with this very low 3.9% unemployment rate? And should I maybe not look at it as just kind of sour grapes from an opposition party that is upset that their opponents have a good economy? I think the unemployment rate is measuring something real. It should be one of the things that we look at when we measure the strength of the labor market. So as you said, it's a technical definition. You are only counted in the unemployment rate if you actively looked for a job in the last four weeks. Okay. And that is a share of people in the labor force. And you're in the labor force if you are employed or if you're unemployed. And so unemployed is, is just that, that number of people that are actively looking for a job over the people actively looking for a job and the people with a job. And so it's not the population. So the population is another question. Gotcha. Um, because there are people that are out in the population that are not being counted in the labor force because they have left the labor force. They could be discouraged. They don't see opportunities. Um, they could be concerned about the pandemic. Um, they could not be, um, you know, able to look right now because they have caregiving responsibilities. They could have retired early. There could be many factors that lead to people to be out of the labor market. And so I would say that the unemployment rate is a measure and it's a useful measure, but I would argue that it does overstate the strength of the labor market. When we think 3.9%, I think exactly what you're saying. It's under 4%. That should read as a pretty strong economy. Yes. Um, and yet there are still people sidelined. We are still millions of jobs below where we were back in February 2020. Is there, let's say that the curious listeners of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast want a more holistic view of the economy. Is is there another number that maybe we should be paying more attention to or a combination of numbers or some sort of index? Absolutely. There are many numbers we want to look at. I think the top line number of um, added jobs, so that payroll employment number is really key um, because that is coming from the establishment survey, which has a little less volatility, um, is a little bit more accurate month to month basis because it has a larger sample. It winds up getting benchmarked to unemployment insurance records. You don't have to worry about um, people going out to households or making phone calls and getting the information from households. And so it can be, um, it's seen generally as more accurate. 
And so that payroll number, what we learned from that is that over the course of 2021, we added over 6.4 million jobs yeah. in the economy. And that's the number when you say oh, it's disappointing. I think it's, it hasn't been weak, but it's been weaker than many people have expected. Yeah. Um, but over the year, we're in excess of 500,000 jobs added every month in in any world, that is a pretty good year. And um, and it's twice as fast as any 12 months recovery from the Great Recession and faster than any of the last three recessions. So it is pretty strong. Well, OK, I'm, oh, man, I'm so glad you brought this up. because This is something that I've been I've been dying to ask somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. When the pandemic hit, the the allegory that I made on the podcast was for public health measures, we're going to see whether or not much in the same way that when your computer is not working, we're going to turn it off and turn it back on again, it being the economy. And hopefully we will have in the intervening time a, a mitigation of this public health thing. Let's leave the public health thing out of it or whether or not it was effective. But uh, uh, the the economic reality, it, it seemed to me like something that has never happened in my lifetime, that we went through a couple months of data where we were cosplaying the Great Depression and then seemed to kind of almost immediately start recovering and have continued to recover. So before we get into measuring how that recovery has been, can you give us some historical uh, 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 idea of how bizarre what happened in 2020 was? It's certainly outside the experience of anyone who's alive today. Right? Yeah. We basically paid people to stay home. That was what the decision was by policymakers. They said, okay, if you're not an essential worker, if you're not on the front lines, you know, providing food for people, providing health care, um, whatever that list of things is, obviously collecting garbage and you know, all yeah. of the things that are necessary. Um, for people to bring in Uber Eats. Thank you for your right. service, everybody who worked for Postmates in Oakland throughout 2020. Right. So essential workers and frontline workers, however we want to call them, we're going to say everybody else should stay home. And we're going to make sure that unemployment insurance is generous enough that people can continue paying their rent and putting food on the table and taking care of their basic needs during that time. And then we're going to reopen and we're going to hope that the economy um, can you know, then bounce back. And we did, right? We saw a yes. pretty big bounce back right away. Okay, hold on. Did we know that was going to happen or was that, because it seemed even in the moment, it's like, sure, let's hope that you could take a, a, a bull economy, shoot it, and then it, it just regrows when you're ready for it to start. But, you know, a lot of things go into something as gigantic as the American economy. If there were some underlying issues that might have come to the fore, could this have been a tremendous disaster? Sure. I mean, we didn't know. Yeah. But we were taking what a was guess. The alternative? We were hoping. Yeah. We were taking a guess. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that the economists, we had to take a back seat to what the public health experts were saying. Yes. And that was it. And <laughs> I mean, I think that that was it. That's what yeah. had to happen. And yeah. if you can make people whole financially during that gap that you're going to say um, has to occur for public health reasons. Whether or not we can say it worked, we don't, you know, we don't know what the course of the pandemic would have been otherwise. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We you never know, thought you, it would last this long. We don't know. Yeah. You certainly can't prove a negative there. And, and especially in the era of like 15 days to stop the spread, like 
that was that was the policy. And and so I think, you know, most people put back in that situation without any foreknowledge would probably make the same decisions uh, uh, again, probably even regardless of party. But uh, uh, it still was one of those things where it's like, man, it, it it's crazy, unprecedented uh, a thing. So let, let's go back to the recovery then. If we're going to say, all right, we're turning it off and turning it back on again, turning it back on again, you would hope means that it rises to the level of employment that we have have seen. Granted, the pandemic is not over as cases continue to spike with, with Omicron, hopefully on a less lethal basis than it's been in the past. But uh, where are we now by percentage compared to March of, of, of 2020 when we made the public health decisions to shut things down? Well, we've had a huge bounce back. Um, yeah. As I said, this year alone, we had about 6.4 million jobs added. When we think about what the shortfall is, we are still down uh, 3.6 million jobs below pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, now we're talking about almost two years ago. And so we can't just look at, we want to get back to February 2020. We actually yeah. want to get back to a time that would include the population growth since then, mm-hmm. the kind of economic growth we had leading into 2020, right? We were growing pretty strong. And um, if we wanted to take into account just population growth, then that shortfall is more like 5 million jobs. That's how many we are still missing from the economy today, even though we have an unemployment rate of 3.9%. And that's what's crazy, right? That's that's where I'm, I'm like, okay, because 5 million jobs is a lot of jobs. Like that's, that's, that's a lot of people that are not in, in the workforce. Do we have any sense of of a pattern of who's not returning to the workforce? Is there any kind of indicator of, of uh, uh, you know, is it more COVID conscious people? Is it uh, of people for whom childcare is now complicated? Like, is there anything that, that we can that we can trace of, of folks who are a little hesitant to get back into it or feel discouraged? Well, there's clearly a host of reasons. I think all of those are on the list. Um, One thing to look at is where the job loss has occurred and in what sectors are there still big shortfalls. And so you're still talking about leisure and hospitality jobs. Think restaurants, tourism, those are the, the, by far, that was the sector that was hit the worst. So those workers were much more likely to get laid off and lose their jobs. There have been a lot of jobs added in that sector. Um, over the last year, and you did see a a bounce back initially, and we have seen, you know, pretty decent growth over the last year, but we're still facing a shortfall of about 1.2 million jobs in Asia and hospitality. That's one place to look. And disproportionately, though, those are lower wage jobs. So those are Mm -hmm. people that were really hurt, um, were incredibly bolstered by the unemployment insurance measures that were taken and the economic impact payments to be able to stay whole during that period but we still are facing a pretty big shortfall. The other sector that I think sometimes gets overlooked is the public sector, public sector employment, and that's all in state and local governments, not federal government shortfalls. State and local governments, and much of that is in the education employment area. So you're seeing um, fewer teachers, for instance, than you had pre-pandemic. A lot of um, coverage has been given to talk about bus drivers, um, also substitute teachers. And so there's in that sector, they're facing almost a million, um, 900,000 uh, fewer wow. jobs in the public sector than there were in February 2020. So I, I, I get that there's going to be an ebb and flow in in tourism, you know, uh, 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 growing up in South Florida, you, you've 
you 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 can understand that less people show up during hurricane season and let's understand that that there is a uh a, you know a, a constant hurricane in terms of the anxiety of covid so if less people are taking vacations then there is going to be less of a need for people to be hired uh but the public sector thing is is fascinating like is uh, i would assume that that is dictated by money that comes in to schools there have been now three rounds of federal stimulus to give money to schools. Is this partly because less parents are sending their kids into the public school system or uh, do we have, is this still an, an unsolved mystery? Somewhat of an unsolved mystery. I mean, I think that some of the American rescue plan dollars um, there's been some clarification of how that money can be spent and um, it certainly can be spent to bolster employment. So I would hope that states and localities would be doing that to try to bolster employment. I mean, we know there were all sorts of problems um, in the pandemic with uh, antiquated unemployment insurance systems. So you think about like what you need to do to recession proof some of those parts of the public sector, um, absolutely needing more um, public health workers. You would think that you would be seeing um, a pretty big increase just in terms of um, testing and providing vaccines and all of that and what was necessary during the pandemic. So I would hope that state and localities would take upon that themselves to um, bolster that employment. Um, so I'm, I'm a little surprised to see that those numbers still pretty low. And I hope that hope that improves in coming months. That's nuts, because if we if we're guesstimating it at five million jobs that we that we could be at if everything had continued to to kind of hum along then that's one fifth, right? It's one third. If we just look at, at, at what it is now, that's a massive amount. Like that is, that is, that is really statistically relevant. All right. Let me, let me switch gears a little bit because while again, stock market doing well, everybody's mutual funds are looking good so far. Uh, the unemployment rate really, really low. That, those are the things that that any administration and certainly the Biden administration is going to put out front. They're going to talk about as much as they possibly can. The things that are not so sunny and seem to be driving some of the downward poll numbers are, as we talked about, the lack of employment in that other survey. And then the I word, inflation, the thing that tends to kill presidencies and and legislative majorities throughout the history of our country not in my lifetime and i have plenty of gray hair have i seen un, uh, seen inflationary numbers like we are seeing based on the most recent reports we talk a lot about what it means retail wise cost of a jug of milk is more than it would be previous how much does inflation play into this hiring though like i, I how much are inflationary pressures going to stop some people from bringing other people on if the margins are tighter? That's an interesting question. Um, I definitely have thought about inflation from the supply side bottlenecks um, question, and hopefully that will resolve. Um, I think that what is happening with uh, wages is that we have seen some pickup in wage growth. And I think that is somewhat reflected in these lower unemployment rates, maybe there are fewer workers available to work because of the pandemic or because of caregiving responsibilities or other concerns. Um, and that has given workers a little bit more leverage than they have had before yeah. to maybe ask for more. I mean, we're seeing a lot more churn 
in the low wage labor market. So that means that we're seeing high levels of quits. Um, there's been a lot of stories about the great resignation. Um, yes. But the fact, yeah, but the fact is that like hiring exceeds quits. And so people are maybe quitting their jobs, but they're taking other jobs, maybe in the same sector. Maybe they've had a chance to reevaluate and they're looking for jobs in other sectors. Mm-hmm. And so that gives workers a little bit more leverage. And I think they're acting with their feet to say, oh, I don't want this job anymore because um, I think I can get paid more over here or I can get a better schedule or I can get flexibility or I can work from home or I have yeah. paid sick days. Whatever the things that they may be looking for, um, they're trying to get better opportunities. So this is really an, an, an employee's market, you know, to, to, to use like, you know, borrow the buyer seller's market dichotomy that, that employees are, are seeing more options for themselves than they would have in the economy in February of 2020. Right. A, a bit more. I mean, in February, 2020, there were more people in the labor market yeah. and the unemployment rate was even lower. So I would say that that was um, pretty tight. Now it, it appears tighter, but we also do have profits really high. Yeah. And so that's the other side. So the share of corporate sector income going to labor isn't necessarily rising um, because some companies are doing quite well. Um, So now, okay. So, so there is, there is just more in, in, in the kitty that they can, you know, uh, uh, afford to pay, pay more folks. Uh, Let's, let's talk about a little bit more about the kind of inflation thing, because this is, uh, again, been, been a death knell for, uh, presidencies in the past. Uh, we heard a lot from the Biden administration throughout the, uh, uh, end of 2021 that this is, uh, transitory and, and, and it seems to me, and let me ask you, I'm going to lay out the way I see it. You can tell me, c- critique me on, on, on whether or not I'm getting something wrong here, but it seems to me that the two different philosophies on inflation that we're currently seeing are are this and they're probably both but maybe one is is leading uh, more than the other the first is this is the supply chain obviously maybe we can have a larger conversation about we become too dependent on foreign manufacturing we become too dependent on the shipping lines our our, our relationship with china is certainly at the heart of this but when you have a disease and you have a, a a need for things that are need to be uh, manufactured there and shipped over here. They're just going to get jammed up. It's exactly what happened. Uh, and and now that's just going to cost more. It costs more to get over here. It costs more to make over there. It costs more to get from the port to where you're going to go. And that will eventually get better. We are seeing some thawing of it. Even, you know, the chip shortage that has been talked a lot about in in Asia is something that that is being projected to be, you know, kind of round off by the end of this year. So we will see supply chain inflation probably through the end of this year, but we will begin to see it ebb maybe as soon as now. I think like there was there I, I read a thing uh, 2 days ago that said that the December number was possibly going to be the highest that it will get. The other philosophy is, hey, we've pumped a lot of money into this economy, especially through the the last year when we were paying people to stay home. That's a lot of cash that went into an economy, uh, an economy that was not humming by design. And if that happens monetarily, you are going to see inflation. And that kind of inflation doesn't necessarily 
go away so fast as soon as the the, 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 the ports start churning a little farther. And it, maybe that's wishful thinking. And this will hang around not only through this year, but maybe until, you know, a recession or a, a dramatic rate hike uh, uh, kind of puts puts an end to some of the borrowing. Uh, is is are those the two philosophies? And, and what have I gotten wrong here? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I definitely lean heavily on the supply side bottlenecks, and I do think that those will clear up. When you think about um, what households are spending money on, uh, certainly they've had more demand for certain kinds of goods. So if you think about cars, yeah. so maybe more people were buying cars, but do you need to buy a new car every year? No. And so maybe there was um, some pent-up demand, and then that realized, I don't think that's going to be a long-run phenomenon. And I think the implications of how we think about inflation are important to consider as well. So what I think about is I think what's the Federal Reserve going to do, right? Yeah. Are they going to um, raise rates sooner rather than later? And what are they seeing when they look at these numbers? And one thing that I think is really important to point out as they look at things like wage growth or the unemployment rate is that an unemployment rate of 3.9% is the overall, right? And we're looking at what has come down over the last year, that doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. And so a tighter yeah. labor market would mean that um, the black unemployment rate would not have risen between November and December, um, that we would see, um, while historically the black unemployment rate tends to be twice as high as the white unemployment rate, that doesn't have to be the case. There's nothing natural that makes that, that the case. And we need to get an even tighter labor market absorbing more people in the economy before the Federal Reserve worries too much about inflation and puts on the brakes prematurely. Because if you do that, then that is going to hurt many people in the economy, disproportionately lower wage workers who lost their jobs in the last year and a half. When we say raise rates, if you could put that into to layman's terms so so people can can understand exactly what that means, because that's another one of those things that I, I, and, and I'm guilty of it just as much as anybody else to say, like, oh, you know, they're going to raise rates. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I mean, I generally have an idea because I just bought a house that I know what 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 rates mean to things like that. But other than that, I have I have no clue what it means to an average an, an average person, let alone the economy at large. So it, it, the the rumor is the Fed's going to raise rate in in March. What does that mean? Right. So when you think about you and buying a house, if your rates go up, the interest rates are being offered, um, then you might think twice about buying that house, or you might not be willing to pay so much for the house because you're going to have to pay more of it off in terms of um, in terms of a higher interest rate. Similarly, when businesses are thinking about making investments, um, expanding, um, hiring more workers, uh, the kinds of uh, capital investments that they might need to make take cash and you are making it more expensive by raising rates because they're going to have to pay it back at, at higher rates. So that's essentially what I think sort of layman's yeah. terms about how to think about what that means. So it can serve then to slow down um, the labor market directly. So anything that involves borrowing cars, homes, student loans, uh, business loans, personal loans, anything that involves borrowing, which when you think about the churning machine, that is the American economy, it lives on, on, on borrowing both on the retail and on the, on the, the, the business side. That's, that's what this affects. That is a blanket uh, of, of change to how every single vector of that works. That's 
right. And you're making it relatively more expensive to make those kinds of investments or those kinds of purchases. So you would expect as the supply chain bottlenecks begin to ease that we will see lower inflation? That's right. Okay. Uh, when do we think we will like, right, let, me, let me ask you this. So all right, uh, uh, if, if, if you were a betting person, the, 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 the idea of December being the, the highest, is that, is that something that, that you think is optimistic? Let's not even do betting. Do you think that's optimistic or, 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 or pessimistic? I think we're going to see relief in coming months. Okay. Yeah. That we are, that we are, we are closer to the middle than, than we are to, to the beginning of some of these inflationary uh, the, 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 the rise in in inflation. I think we're going to see a slowdown in the, in the rate that we've seen. I mean, I would say the the same thing about Omicron. Yeah. Hopefully the worst is behind us. Hopefully, hopefully the worst, I guess it depends on where you are, but, but certainly, certainly where you are. Oh my God. In, in, in DC and New York, it, it, it seemed like everybody, I mean, I'll tell you that, that is the weirdest. This fire's just been so weird. I, 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 I feel like it was, I had more people I knew get it over the last month and a half than the previous two years. Like it was like maybe somebody here or there that had it before and and, and now all over the place, but yeah. And it's so, so widespread and it probably ha- is having an effect on the labor market, obviously with shutdowns and pools and all sorts of things happening, but also the people being available to work. I mean, that has to be having a measurable impact at least in some places um, on the labor market itself. Uh, last question here, and we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up with COVID. It's been my sense that from the political will, the political capital perspective, that lockdown measures are not something that any politician of any party really has a lot of leeway with, it, and certainly not to the point that they did early in the pandemic back in 2020 when it it was like, well, oh, sure, let's shut down. It's kind of a spring break. Uh, 15 days, I could use that. Uh, now it, it very much seems uh, uh, situations have become a lot more dire. There's, there's you know, uh, uh, a lot more of a, an economic reality here. From an economics perspective, would you say that, that there is uh, uh, now a little bit more of a, a, there would be more of a pushback toward you know, any kind of government interventions into shutting down certain businesses uh, in case uh, COVID continues to hang around? I mean, it's very much a political question. Yeah. Um, And I've leaned towards listening to the public health experts about what's important. I think what's sometimes missing from the conversation is the fact that a very small share of people in the labor market today are actually working from home. So about almost 90% of workers are actually physically going to work and and taking on those jobs. And I think it's hard to remember that when so many of us, uh, me included, have been able to work safely from my own home and and don't have to um, go out and have those kinds of occupations that put me in harm's way. That is a great, great thing to go out on to, to remind everybody that 
the managerial class and and chattering dogs on the internet like me, uh, uh, I've lived a very blessed life to be able to do this from home, both before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Uh, uh, that is not the case. Wow, I, I didn't even, I probably would have guesstimated it higher than that. So you're saying 80 to 90% of the workforce, like, like so this is just like a, a very small sliver that that was able to work from home the, to go from an office to just the, the the Zoom and Slack lifestyle. That's right. That's right. I mean, the share that we're um, teleworking certainly was much higher earlier in the pandemic, um, but it has come down tremendously and it is very much a privilege, as you say. Well, uh, it's been a privilege to talk to you and become smarter on stuff like this. Uh, Elise Gould, she is a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, we are all smarter for having uh, chatted with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Thank you. And that's our show today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank uh, Elise for coming on the show, you can do so very easily. px3guest.com. New guest. New guest for the first time. Whenever somebody comes on for the first time, you know we love it when our when 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 you guys just go let them know that you appreciated they took time out of your uh, out of their day to do it. px3guest.com is where you can do that. If you want to send an email to the show, it is the young american at gmail. On Twitter, it is px3tweets. On Twitch, it is px3live. Uh get our newsletter, which will infrequently send you writings of mine. px3newsletter.com. Podcasts can be shared by anybody to px3podcast.com. Our merch is found at politicsmerch.com. You want to give me a one-time donation, you can do so at paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send stuff in the mail. In fact, I got a $20 check in the mail at P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. You can exclusively get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss in our free podcast schedule. And, of course, the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show, like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Idris Arslandian, DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dakin Sayani, LA Admiral, Flapjack, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Blurbus, Unum, Pete Spicetti, TV Salesman, or Spy. D, really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com junkie, DP for Bungo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Diana Scathing Scowls, Double K Ranch, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John Snuffies, Off Route 44, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, J Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name, Red. As one of them, 
The only place to do it is takepoliticsseriously.com. Friday's episode should be pretty fun. We're going to talk about tech hysteria and other interesting concepts. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss our Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.